Hello dear listeners, welcome to another episode of Strategic Dialogues. I am your host Faith Mabera and I'm joined by, by my co-host Sanusha Naidu. We are turning to the Asia Pacific in today's conversation, looking at the diplomatic tensions between Australia and China that have grabbed headlines over the past couple of weeks. Relations between Australia and China are rapidly soaring, including mounting recriminations and escalating tensions that have seen uh, the relations between the two countries at their lowest in the course of their 50-year history. The unraveling of ties between Australia and China has been underway for years before reaching the levels of intensity that we've witnessed now in 2020. In 2018, Australia passed a raft of new laws aimed at at preventing foreign interference in uh, the country's affairs, ostensibly aimed at China. And in 2019, Australia was among the first countries to ban Huawei from involvement in building its 5G networks. Earlier this year in April, Australia was at the forefront in pushing for an international inquiry into the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. And what we saw is that shortly thereafter, China imposed tariffs on Australian beef, barley and coal and slapped a hefty anti-dumping tariff of more than 200% on Australian wine, which has been advanced as a measure to stop um, what what Beijing sees as subsidised imports. The media has also not been spared in this debacle. We saw that in June, um, Australian intelligence and police raided the homes of four Chinese journalists over alleged influence campaigns. And authorities in China, on the other hand, also questioned two Australian journalists in a national security probe in September, which eventually led them to leave the country. With China accounting for about 35% of Australia's total trade, some experts fear an all-out trade war could cost the latter 6% of its GDP. And in contrast, Australia accounts for less than 4% of China's commerce. The symmetric trade relationship, decline in bilateral relations all around, has also been compounded by a lack of government-to-government engagement. But there are also wider geopolitical implications. Beijing has been angered by Australian criticisms of its actions in Hong Kong, Xinjiang, Taiwan, and the South China Sea. To help us understand the diplomatic tussle between China and Australia and to provide much-needed context and nuance, we are joined by Dr. Lauren Johnston, who is a research associate at the China Institute of the School of Oriental and African Studies uh, and a research fellow at the Faculty of Social Sciences at the Mohammed V University in Rabat. Lauren is widely published in English and Chinese on China-African economic relations and economic demographic topics. She has previously held positions at the Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin, the University of Melbourne, Beijing Foreign Studies University, and World Economic Forum. As founding director of New South Economics, she has also consulted for World Bank and United Nations. Thanks so much for joining us, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me. I think to, to start us off, uh, the Australia-China relations, um, at least when you look at a cursory glance of it, it seems to me that it's much more complex than what the headlines suggest. This is so much more than simply just commodities exports. Um, and there's such a dense economic integration between the, the two, isn't there? Yes, I think even from Europe or from places in Africa that I have visited that have kind of ostensibly surfaced close ties with China, 
it's quite another level altogether, the relationship between China and Australia. And this is because the it's not just that the goods level of trade is very close, but the services level of trade is also very close. And typically that involves large numbers of Chinese students going to Australia for study, um, some stay on for work afterwards. So like the, the people-to-people ties between Australia and China are exceptionally close. Obviously now at the macro-political level, very fraught, but at the, the kind of day-to-day level, there's also a, just a, a lot of interaction between China and Australia. So it's really not just about digging up iron ore in Western Australia and putting it on ships. You know, the kind of West Coast relationship is all about mining and commodities, but the East Coast relationship is much, much more nuanced and much more services concentrated. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up the the people-to-people ties that that, um, some are often overlooked in, in a lot of the commentary that I've seen. Um, and turning now to 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 what we've seen as um, really really rapidly um, escalating tensions, to 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 seasoned like China watchers, for instance, um, I think there's there's a a, pers- a perspective emerging that um, the activities that have involved the the, the 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 particularly around the commerce and the trade dimension that um, there's almost a dual purpose that. That there's one Beijing is 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 um sort of relaying its concern over the relationship, but at the same time, it's I think it served a purpose of activating the Australian business community um, as lobbyists, and that what we've seen emerging out of China's response in this is that its its uh its response to the decline in 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 bilateral relations has been almost. Um, very tactical. It's been delivered across a whole um, spectrum of activities, and it's targeted specific um, input um, categories. So, like when 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 you want to help our listeners now make sense of the current state of affairs, how would you sum up the views from um, Beijing and from Canberra, like in your own assessment of of, of affairs? Um. Wow. <laughs> I think I'm actually now sitting in Berlin and I'm between Berlin and London in part thanks to that complexity, although I'm Australian and I lived in Beijing for eight years. Um, From the Australian end, I, I think the ties began to turn in 2011, which was when Prime Minister Gillard agreed an American base in the northern Australian city of Darwin. So there's always been this phrase in Australia that Australia would one day, or it's attached to a particular scholar called Hugh White, that Australia would have to make a choice between China and and America. And I guess when Prime Minister Gillard made that choice of this US base in Darwin, as, as a friend of mine put it, that Basically, that day they had stated their choice was already made. And in the years thereafter, ties continued. I mean, the actual trade itself is incredibly complementary. You know, Australia has all these resources, lots of space, lots of English language services, and, you know, and and very good quality of those things. And China has all these, you know, industrialized, manufactured goods and, and so on. So it's a 
It's an incredibly complementary and unusually complementary economic relationship and also geographically close. Um, but I would guess from, you know, from then 2011, just slowly from this Huawei decision and on and on and then COVID and the South China Sea. And I think 2011 was actually also just before she came to power. But she has taken a, a more strident approach on the international stage. And, you know, I guess in under, during his reign, Chinese outbound insurance, uh, sorry, um, investment overtook, um, overtook inbound investment. So it's not really a surprise that China, for example, launched the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a kind of a unusual name for what is an outbound economic geopolitical type agenda. That arose not just because she had an idea, but at least in my view, it arose because China was literally going out. By this stage, it was not just the world's biggest trader, but it had become a net outbound investor. So, and and on top of this, in the 2010s or around that time, was also when both China and Australia reached their working age population peak. So both of them now confront aging populations, which brings a host of economic and political challenges, especially in Australia where the old are the richer cohort, they are they can vote and so on. So you have all these underlying structural changes. And in China, population aging is forcing China to become a more advanced economy. You know, their younger people are more educated and their wages are higher in order to make that sustainable both for the for the individuals and for the economy china has to move into these more competitive more advanced sectors and then by doing that then they can generate the productivity and the money or the returns to to fund all those old people in hopefully some sort of humanitarian way in their elder years but then then you then have this more tense environment between china and the west because to succeed china has to move into kind of advanced economic sectors now but then and if it doesn't succeed in doing that there'll be much slower global growth so just based on the demographics and where china was to me this period was always going to be more tense and i guess it just brings up australia's very unusual historical position i mean it's a southern hemisphere country it sells you know it sells a set of goods that are not that different to an african economy in terms of a lot of commodities and so on especially in the case of china but it's a western aligned us aligned kind of you know post colonial setup or a colonial setup in in a sense it's not colonial it's post colonial but uniquely so so you have this kind of odd relationship where China is this defender of the South, and, and but it's actually a big industrialized northern economy. And Australia, which is this northern economy, like northern political identity, but it's based in the South selling resources to China and it's much smaller than China. So the, that, that to me is the kind of bigger structural picture. And then I guess that the choice of Prime Minister Gillard to allow the base in Australia began a signal of how is Australia planning to adjust this century to becoming a very small Western-aligned country in the South Pacific, in effect. And that was what 
Julia Gillard decided, you know, on, on behalf of the country to do. I was in Beijing at the time and I'll never forget the taxi drivers, the students at Bet, just the questions I got from everyone about, they were devastated, they were shocked, like how could Australia, like friendly Australia agree to this base? And I guess, you know, that it was easy for Australia and China in the 1980s, no, not 1980s, 1990s and 2000s because it was so complementary. But now China's much richer and much more advanced. It's in the population aging phase. It has to enter these areas. And maybe for whatever reason, she has chosen to push into those domains as part of a bigger package of assertiveness. And I guess Australia is just somehow on that front line um, as because it's so much, it's geographically closer, it's economically super intertwined, and the two countries contemporarily have a kind of an unusual political economy history. And so hence it's the country on the front line now being tested in all kinds of ways via this trade war, via technology decisions, just a super complex time. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm glad you actually. Yeah, yeah, I'm. I'm glad that you brought in um the just the the complex nuances around not only the economic calculus, but I also appreciate the points you've raised about the dem demographic um changes in China and how that also influences just the kind of of approach that um, China is turning to in its immediate um, region, and and just just to build up on my earlier question about so like. I like the contrast that you've brought in about the view from Beijing and the view from Canberra, but um, I think what I want to what I want to also just sort of maybe add a bit of layer to that question is mm -hmm. some some of the commentary that I've come across seems to point uh, to this assertiveness, like you've said, like you've pointed out, um, Lauren, that this this um, assertiveness and now. Um, come back to 2020 now where we've seen um, increasing use of the lingo of um, wolf warrior uh, diplomacy. And, and this how this has also come coupled with um, agitation and propaganda, which has been scaled up through, through social media. But there's also an element of discourse control, um, particularly if you look at the list of the 14 grievances that China issued to the, to the Australian government. So is this a case of effectively strangling the chicken to frighten the monkey, as uh, Danny Russell, former um, Asia-Pacific advisor to Joe Biden and Barack Obama observed, is it a case of a doubling down of the demonstration effect and a singling out of Australia um, as a test case for, for assertiveness of, of um, China's sharp power? And, and just before you jump in, maybe to, to now bring in the view from, from Canberra in my reading, um, it seems that capitulation is not an option in this case. It's interesting that the effect that China's coercive tactics has laid up in Canberra is that there's a unification element going on. This, the level of bipartisanship has increased. But it, 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 I mean, one can't help but wonder whether it's also a self-inflicted crisis of some sort on the part of Australia, because some would argue that Australia has failed in the long term, at least, to think about its diversifying its trade relationship 
relationships, plural, and that it's it's failed to develop a multi-dimensional perspective to its relations with China beyond commerce, beyond economics. So maybe just your thoughts on that. Um, hopefully I'll remember all of the points in, in your questions. Um, remind me if I don't, please. From Beijing first, I mean, I certainly can't speak for the Beijing, the decisions made by or from Beijing, though I, I lived there for eight years and I did my PhD at Peking University. Um, I, I think it's, I mean, there, there is a wolf warrior diplomacy, but at least from what I can see, it's not actually being led by the diplomats strictly. It's being led by spokespeople. And so perhaps, you know, the, the Minister Wang Yi or any of the ambassadors are being, they're, they're more willing to go on TV like the ambassador to China of Australia has been on TV a few times. That maybe 10 years ago, that wouldn't have happened. Or so, so there's a, some level of greater outreach, but this this wolf warrior diplomacy, to me, to some extent, I mean, the state media and these spokespeople, it's a it's a bit of a like they're they're baiting, they're really baiting these countries, but it's not official baiting quite. And I know these people are spokespeople of the ministry or so on, but they are strictly speaking still just spokespeople and. In the case of Australia, when Australia responds to these, it's not their equivalents who are responding. It's the prime minister or the foreign minister or the opposition foreign minister or, you know, it's it's not a Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade spokesperson who no doubt, as those spokespeople were, were some super debating kind of genius with great language skills who can swap between English and Chinese with, with a great articulate and almost cheeky, you know, aggressive gift. Australia's not responding with that equivalent person. So I, I feel like their wolf warrior diplomacy is actually also just a bit distracting. So you have people in very senior positions in Australia responding to Chinese diplomatic or media spokespeople. And I just don't think that's appropriate. I, I don't think that the prime minister or the foreign minister should be responding directly to cheeky and aggressive baiting from spokespeople. Now, if Foreign Minister Wang Yi said an equivalent and posted that to Twitter, that would be, that would literally be very explicit wolf warrior diplomacy. But you, you haven't actually seen the same type. So I feel like there's a, it's almost belittling of Australia that Australia responds from, from those official channels because it's just spokespeople baiting them. So whether China is doing that, I mean, if you were to look back historically and say, no, but our foreign minister never attacked Australia, our trade minister never said anything. I mean, obviously the trade tariffs and so on are a different story. Hmm. But there's one element of just distracting Australia. Australia shouldn't be responding except on a superficial spokesperson level to, to that baiting in my view. I think it belittles Australia that the Prime Minister would even respond to comments by a spokesperson. Um, and then on the um, on the Canberra side, so why China has chosen Australia, 
they've kind of chosen each other in a way. I mean, the relationship is much more intense than it is on in Europe or in England or in the States. I mean, the States, these other countries and continents have really intense continental ties, whether it's with Africa, with each other, with Latin America. You know, Australia is very, very integrated with the East Asian region and it's a Western aligned country. So in that sense, it's the most exposed to this new Asian century. So it makes sense that Australia would be the test case because it is the, it's the canary in the mine or it's the whatever is the right analogy. Um, and it responds, you know, and then in, in Canberra's case, um, again, I, I, just my view, I think they've responded at the wrong level. And Australia's relationship with China is, and with East Asia is, Really, it's kind of defining foreign policy area. It doesn't have deep and intense equivalent relationship with Africa, with South America, or, or so with other regions. It doesn't have that. So, of course, it does get very tangled up in this China story. And then, as I said, there's just lots of dialogue. There's lots of visible, there's lots of foreign students. Um, I'm not sure, coming back to, I'm trying to remember. Oh, and then the... Some of the points like this, it, it has allowed a, a centralization of power in Australia for better or for worse. So I'm from, um, or I grew up in Victoria, the state that signed the, it currently has a, a left government, if you've got a Labour government, and they signed a Belt and Road Agreement, so a state-level Belt and Road Agreement without going through any federal channels. So they did that independently. It was like a state to nation agreement and or a province to nation agreement. And the Australian federal government's point, and they, they can do that based on the federal structure, but the federal government said, well, you know, they, I can't, the Australian government can't sign an agreement with Jiangsu province equivalently or with Shandong province equivalently. Like this doesn't make sense. And it might have earlier been difficult to create the environment to pass a federal law that meant all states had to get almost to get Canberra's approval before they could do that kind of thing um and now they have they just passed that this week so yes it has allowed some centralization of power which some parts of Australia agree with others don't um, for better or for worse, it now has, there has been a centralization of elements of intelligence or foreign affairs um, or, or so on. So just as, you know, a bit of background, I mean, there is, there are these um, st states and they all have parliaments and they have a lot of independent interaction with the world. So China has now, in and, and China has super close ties with every state in Australia. I think even Tasmania, the first ever international flight Tasmania had to a country outside of Australia, even maybe New Zealand, was straight to China about six years ago. So there'd never been an international flight from Hobart until five or six years ago, and it went straight to Guangdong or Shanghai or somewhere. You know, so it, it is a, a much closer relationship maybe than people realise and there's maybe not a lot of density of China expertise in Tasmania, for example. And so now the government is trying to centralize that for, for better or for worse. And China's wolf warrior diplomacy has definitely made it easier.
Thanks. Have I answered all those questions? Yeah, no, no. You you gave us a fantastic um, segue into the next question. I mean, I think you you've captured some salient points around uh, the relationship um, and, of course, the identity of Australia in a region that it kind of finds itself uh, in different kind of contexts, um, both as a kind of northern uh, country within an Asia Pacific, but at the same time grappling with the fact that there's an Asian century that's emerging or uh, an Asian multilateralism, which could very well be defined as a kind of Chinese-centric multilateralism. I think that that for me yeah. is interesting in the context of what does this Asian multilateralism mean? Um, and does it always have to be born out of crises? Or is it that China, through its own century of humiliation, is just reasserting itself in terms of what is what is a normalization of where it would have been without these different yeah. historical epochs that have interrupted oh, it? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. It definitely is that. And even the original map of the belt and road that like focuses on the areas that China had closer ties with back in the Ming dynasty or so on, like back earlier, kind of almost a pre-colonial world where the Americas weren't that tied into the world economy and nor was Australia. And so Australia, as it is today, didn't exist when China was last powerful. And so how, how therefore, does China frame it into, if, if in any way China has reference to its earlier period, how then would it integrate Australia into its new, into its new frame of how it reemerges into the world? where it would have been had, you know, opium wars and, and so on not happened. And this is really the period. The period from 2021 to 2049 is the period when China does redefine its place in the world. So in a way, to me, she has kind of front-loaded some of the, the challenges, domestic and international, to that. It's almost like he's been a like it's a funny analogy but like an acupuncturist that has like stuck the needles in all the nerves so that the nerve center and the and the political economy risks of hong kong he's like stuck a big needle into that and xinjiang like he's going around sticking any of these problems that from a beijing perspective could emerge to destabilize the the emergence and the re-emergence China wants, to some extent she has has been a, a, a pretty aggressive acupuncturist sticking needles in to all of them. Um, whether that works to alleviate the tensions or whether it makes them worse, that that's all that's an ongoing story. But I, I was always expecting the period from this decade or last decade, to become a bit more tense, just my, my demographics lens, apart from China entering into high-income areas of economic activity and therefore becoming more competitive rather than easy complementary. You know, when China's the economy and their wages are, are, are super low and they take our rubbish and they sell us cheap industrial goods and they buy back all our high-tech goods and services, 
that's a very easy complementary relationship. Mm. But providing it led to China getting richer and more developed to the point where they said, okay, we're not taking that plastics rubbish anymore. Okay, we're not tolerant. Like to some extent there was always going to be a period where there would be tensions and realignment just based on China's shifting comparative advantage. And I always saw, I mean, it really began, a bit of a power shift, I guess, began in 2008 mm. when the financial crisis happened and the West lost a bit of its financial sense of superiority and power. And but that, and then also China hosted the Olympics that year and, and won and it was kind of like a coming out party in a way. I, I was in Beijing then also and I went to the opening ceremony like, it really, it just felt like the opening ceremony of an of, of a new era, not just of an Olympic Games. Like it felt like this is the opening of a different era. And um, and so and then, but around under all that, having not got nearly enough attention for a long time, in my view, is this demographic story. So you know, it was around two thousand eight, ten, so on that America, the UK. Australia, China, the, they all had this post-war demographic bubble and that basically peaked at that time. And so they all now have less favorable demographics. And that that means that fiscal resort, if the economy slows, you have less, you know, extra pie to share. And, you know, people that have just started working are less likely to get jobs or experience, um, you know, gains in their income and their wealth over time and then you have this older cohort who are retiring and in the case of Australia this was like the titan kind of baby boomer cohort mm -hmm. they've been kind of captains of the, I mean they're Australian they're not I'm not saying they're New Yorkers or Londoners mm -hmm. or, or so on but they're still from the west and they had a very very good run you know they had a super high income country generational lifetime, so to speak, this post-war cohort. And so to me, for them, retiring is always a bit of a challenge because it's like the end of this most amazing, brilliant, kind of lucky post-war run. And they're very, very expensive um, retirees too. Like they own most of the housing assets. They have very expensive pensions and they have quite high expectations of what their retirement should be, whether or not the economy can sustain it. And then you have these massive older cohort in China who are the complete opposite of that. They're, the country got old before rich. So most of China's old have earned not much all their life. If they're lucky, they did invest in property, and the property at least makes them rich. But their income was always relatively low and their educational prospects were also pretty limited. And they maybe most of them would have worked on, on a farm or in a factory or in a not particularly sophisticated work environment, a very physical one. And they were always told their pen, they were never promised great pensions in retirement. They were never promised great mm -hmm. healthcare. They were, they were, they've been saving to hopefully manage to pay for that for themselves and hoping the government offers a little more than they have been. So you have these two different generations retiring. And in their wake, in, in China's case, you have these more prosperous, more confident young Chinese 
who've lived in a world where China was rising. It was to them China's rising. It's not a poor country. To them, they've they've finished high school. They've if they're lucky, they also went to university, and then the elite have been abroad to go to university. So after that demographic bubble in China, it's kind of like lifting the curtain on a whole new generation of more confident, more educated, more rich, more prosperous, more global, English-speaking, if they're lucky, Chinese people. And don't get me wrong, there's still a whole lot of poor people in China, but the ones along the coast interacting with the outside mm -hmm. world, they are a different type of Chinese to the older Chinese that we've known as what China is for the last 30 years. And then in Australia, which is, you know, maybe not even as fraught as as other high-income countries, you know, the, the younger people have grown up in a world where the West is not as powerful as it once was, and they have to somehow pay for all these super-privileged old people who aren't even kind of ageing that well. Um, and so just to, there's, there's a very important demographic undertow in my view to to these changes also so you know the wolf warrior diplomacy even it's not that young chinese are aggressive or so on but for them they probably take china's uh, like china as an assertive power or china as an equal power for them that almost comes for granted like if they've been overseas to study they speak english like for them, it's just natural that they're a peer of other places. It just, the geopolitics hasn't kind of matched that so far. And as, as I said to me, she is like this kind of acupuncturist that's going around, you know, trying to solve some of China's broader structural issues by you know, poking needles into the nerve. I mean, I love the analogy of an acupuncturist. I mean, I read um, Kerry Brown's book and, the, and the title was The World According to Xi Jinping. And it's quite important that he mentions this period between 2021 and 2049. Very important milestones for, for China's, um, I think not rise, but China's eminent place in the world particularly the 100-year anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party and then, of course, in 2049 of the Chinese Communist State and what the deliverables are under the five-year plan. And, and, and what does this mean for, for, for countries in Asia? And, you know, we're talking about Australia a lot because uh, we're looking at the, at the engagement between Australia and, and China and, and, and how these different drivers and structural dynamics are changing domestically in, 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 in a region where you have two very, very uh, divergent countries, you know, in terms of the demographics that your expertise, but also in terms of the fact that um, there's, a, there's a greater need for, uh, to use a kind of business approach term, and that is China Incorporated, bringing them all together, bringing Hong Kong, you know, Macau is there already, but it's also about you know, Tibet and, you know, the Taiwan, the Taiwan question as well in terms of what does this mean with your, with your multilateral uh, institutions? I mean, signing the, the, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership uh, is, is, a big, is a big victory for China in terms of a mega regional trading bloc. But at the same time, you've got the question of the South China Seas, the geostrategic questions of security um, and how China is, is, is relating to that. Uh, and what does this mean for a country like Australia where 
the eco economics is important, but so too is the security. And where does it go now if we shift the if we shift the, the lens and say there's a Biden presidency in in waiting, um, and hopefully we'll get uh, it looks like very well we'll get inaugurated on the twentieth of, of January. What does this mean? Because the the RCEP was one of the big is a, is a, is a big multilateral trading agreement that excludes the U.S. But the, the U.S. still has a security interest and there's Australia. And of course, we can't forget the quad countries, but then Japan is part of the RCEP as well. So just some of your comments about that landscape in terms of how complex it is, in terms of you know volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambigu ambiguity, uh, and, and, and how does this play out? Particularly, I don't, I think the term wolf worry, uh, Wolf Warrior is a bit over-exaggerated because it's it's a nice way for media to put out these splashy headlines. Um, yeah, wow. It, it definitely is complex. I mean, in terms of these centennial goals, so the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party is July 23rd next year. And then the founding of the People's Republic in October, 100 anniversary of that is is in 20 in October 2049 and so you have these two big political symbols and in the case of the one next year China had that set the goal that nobody would be living in absolute poverty by this point and you know there's still a lot of not very rich people in China but I guess their goal was to make sure nobody was like in extreme poverty mm -hmm. and I think that that the end of poverty in China is really a symbolic end of poor China, like and non-strident China and non-rich China, non-equal China. It's almost a symbol. So once China celebrates the end of poverty in China, it, it really celebrates the end of taking, literally buying our rubbish, which it did a few years ago. It stopped doing that. Mm -hmm. And and so I, I guess it's a symbolic turning point and She's aggressive, aggressive or what, whatever word. She's strident diplomacy is a kind of a precursor maybe to that symbolic shift next year when poor China ends and China becomes the country that instead is working towards its second centennial goal, which is basically when it's the frontier of all sorts of economic activity you know, the global economy, whatever, all sorts of intellectual pursuits. This is its version of being a frontier country in the 21st century mm. is where it wants to be in 2049. So that obviously is going to be a period that is much more interesting for Western economies because they have been that frontier environment for the last, you know, few hundred years. So Obviously, it's a it's it's a period that will involve a testing relationship over what norms emerge, what areas of competitiveness emerge, and so on. And to some extent, Australia is on that front line because it started trading with China. It started having it has much deeper services and people to people ties than anywhere else in the West. And then it's also quite interesting in terms of. Australia's uniqueness in the Asia Pacific. So if you look at ASEAN countries, you know, they they have different ways of running their countries and different norms to Australia. So they will just 
you know, like Vietnam, I think when when um, <clears throat> when COVID broke out, I think Vietnam just shut the border almost instantaneously mm-hmm. without that in any way being something that was diplomatically questioned or so and they just shut it. And then they have all sorts of, they have different levels of openness towards foreign investment and who can do what in their country, whereas Australia is a, a more open economy that allows a bit more foreign investment in different areas from housing to companies. But that's also becoming a, a, an area of contention. And then even in Southeast Asia, like in Malaysia, Indonesia, and to my knowledge, Singapore, for university entrance, they have all these very strict quotas to make sure that their top universities reflect the diversity of their populations. You know, Australia doesn't have any of these systems. And so it's a much more relatively free and open economy. I'm not saying it's perfectly free. I'm not saying there's not a lot of issues. I'm not I'm not pretending it's some open, equal, meritocratic utopia. But it doesn't have explicit systems that prevent um, you know, like let's let's say there was a course at Sydney University and all of the applicants, there were a hundred places, and the top two hundred applicants were all Chinese Australians, and they would get they would get all of those places. But that wouldn't happen in Malaysia and that wouldn't happen in Indonesia. So there's there's a different way that Australia relates to itself and its region. It has different forms of meritocracy and openness that Indonesia, Malaysia, and so on have just cut themselves off from. And that gives them a different relationship with China also for better and for worse. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not, I'm not suggesting any of these systems are better or worse. I'm not judging them. I'm just explaining that there's a difference. Mm-hmm. And that difference also is helping to give the flavor of the Australia-China relationship a different, a different face, you know. And that's, that's where I think China is having fun in a sense with Australia because it, with say Malaysia or Indonesia, it doesn't have this sort of moral high ground of what it sees. Like it sees Australia as on this moral Western high ground mm-hmm. and it's trying to, put these acupuncture needles into that sense of moral high ground. Whereas with Malaysia and Indonesia, there's not that same. They trade, they have intense relationships, they have close relationships, science, business, people, all of that. But, for example, at the level of investment, there might be different restrictions and they don't have this open, you know, kind of argument of democracy and so on to protect the way Australia does. Mm-hmm. And so they just say, well, sorry, we've set quotas. We only 10% of people can be, you know, Indian, Malaysians, only 10% can be Chinese, Malaysians, and the rest are Malaysians. Or what, I just made that up. I don't know the quotas. No, it's fine. But Australia doesn't have Australia doesn't have those kind of walls. It has its own walls, but they're different walls. And therefore, it has a different relationship with China to what other countries in Southeast Asia do. Thanks so much, uh, Lauren. And I just want to also just piggyback on your last point about um, Australia also doing its own geopolitical reassessment regarding its its 
place in the world and its place in it and its um, approach to developments in its in, in its uh, region in the Asia Pacific region. And here I'll turn to just an interesting development in 2020, um, as far as Australia is concerned, which is the the strategic defence update. And it's interesting because in the 2020 um, Australian defence uh, strategic update, which is central to its defence planning. Um, it, it came out very clearly that it, it's a fundamental shift in, in Australia's strategic approach and that it's it's becoming more in tune. It's, it's sort of um, acting in a pragmatic manner to the changes in its strategic environment. And, and obviously this is the increased geopolitical competition in the, in the Indo-Pacific region. And it's also, it's also um, pointing to the need for an emphasis on, on, on deterrence. Um, it's pointing to, to an, an emphasis on additional investment into defense and greater capability to deter hostile states. But it's, it's important that, that even though um, Australia doesn't uh, out, outrightly mention uh, China or call out China specifically, we can't turn an, a blind eye to, to Beijing's um, aggressiveness in recent months, the, the clash with, with India, um, in, in, in the flare-up over the border, the Himalayan border, the, the standoffs that we've seen escalating with Vietnam and Malaysia in the South China Sea, the pressure on Taiwan, etc., etc. But like you're saying, um, when you look at the, the Indo-Pacific states, it seems that China's aggression um, is, is accelerating the long debates about um, easing economic dependence, the question of... Um, the Quad also and, and ASEAN responses. So is this possibly pointing to a remaking of geopolitics in the in the Indo-Pacific? Mm-hmm. Um, and what what's your reading on this? Because and and you it, it would be interesting to get your point because I mean you you're pretty much familiar with the Asia Pacific region. I mean being 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 raised in Australia but also just living in Beijing. Do you get a sense, and here I'm speaking generally, do you get a sense that mm-hmm. Asian multilateralism is born out of crisis. Um, just as, as some background, actually in high school, I, I went on an exchange to Japan and in my undergrad, I studied for a semester in Thailand as well as a year in China. So yeah, like I, I do have a bit of a, a sense. Um, to come back, I think I didn't answer, the, uh, you, you made a point earlier about this intensity, this dependence and, and I guess, I mean, it's just that the in Australia's case and in other cases, you know, the complementarity is just too, is is too intensive. It's too logical. So, you know, like if, if it just the, the volume and the potential and, and the complementarity is so great that it just kind of steamrolled into this amazing level, but not steamrolled in any, you know, illegitimate or non logical way it just built and built and built and built um so to go against that dependence is to kind of go against economic logic to some extent and therefore if a country decides they don't want to have that much dependence on another country then you need to really instigate a shift that is not that 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 you know instigates different patterns of relationship that may not be as automatically congruent with economics or just take some seeding because, you know, the the economic ties with China are just so kind of 
open and ready. There's there's just so much of it. So it's it's kind of like working against gravity almost to to shift the the dependence level. And then in Australia's case, they would almost need to decide: do we take a hit to do that? So then you have to like all these trade offs. Do we do we lose some growth, some GDP? in order to become less dependent and if we are why are we doing that and so there's just so much complexity and then of course there's some people agree with that change and others don't and so then you get all these voices in democracy disagreeing with what trade off should happen why and some say what are we even talking about there should be no trade off we should just keep going so there's there's all sorts of voices and why are why um, RCEP was signed recently, I'm not 100% sure why it happened when it did. Um, In the case of Australia, Australia already has a free trade agreement with China, so it's not, and with ASEAN, so, and Japan and South. So actually for Australia, it's it's as much a symbolic and maybe a push into digital trade areas. Um, Why it happened then and how the Biden administration will respond, I've I've been reading some statements that the Biden administration may drop the language Indo-Pacific and go back to using Asia-Pacific. Why they would do that and whether that would be a victory for Beijing or not, I don't know. Um, From Australia's angle, Australia like Indonesia, like Malaysia, like Singapore and so on is in both the Indian and the Pacific Ocean. So this, I guess, is where... Southeast Asia and Australia differ from Northeast Asia is that they have this implicit other geopolitical ocean they can focus on. So how ties emerge across the Indian Ocean and what role India could feasibly play in, you know, or or, or Africa in allowing any type of, you know, lessened trade dependence or lesser trade intensity um we'll see over time i mean it's 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 a it's a kind of an anti gravity push but that doesn't mean it's not possible and it doesn't mean it isn't sensible from a strategic perspective so i, I have a a chinese friend from when i was at the I, I was a consultant at the world bank in washington in 2010 and a chinese friend of mine working in D.C., said that he thought Australia was economically Asian, politically and kind of culturally European and militarily or strategically American. And I guess that kind of, it it worked easily in the 1990s and 2000s. That, That balance was very, very comfortable and easy for Australia to maintain. Will it be as easy between 2021 and 2049? Um, I guess that depends on what Biden does, what China does, how China emerges after 2021, I think is also like next year's a, a huge year symbolically for China. This centennial goal, the end of poverty, 100 years of the Communist Party. I'm interested to see if China uses that to change some of its directions and and if it does i mean you know maybe this decade was really kind of she is acupuncturist sticking needles in 
all sorts of horrible places prior to that milestone. Um, not in horrible places, but in horrible ways. Um, prior to that milestone, maybe. Or maybe that's a sign of how everything will continue. So I, I just wonder if by July next year we'll see a different face and this period was a lead-up to that. Or if indeed it's just a sign of how everything's going to go from now on. Um, time will tell. And is Asian diplomacy born out of crisis? Um, I'm sure there's Asian diplomacy born out of non-crisis also, but it probably gets much less attention and no one's really caring about it when it happens. Like even the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank was a form of Asian diplomacy, China-led, sure. Um, and I don't think that was born out of crisis. And, you know, there, mu there must be lots of things that aren't born out of crisis, but the ones that are born out of crisis are remembered and get yeah, more attention. And it, it certainly, what you're saying is it makes for very interesting watching briefs um, going forward, particularly as we get into 2021, as you're saying. And I want to turn a, a sort of further field, right? So, um, we know all the credentials that Australia often gets around its middle power um, status. And when you look at this, this, this the current uh, tensions uh, and the diplomatic role, um, so two, two elements to this question. What, what are the implications of this China-Australia diplomatic role for not only other middle powers and, and middle powers in the sense that who are often considered the champions of, of a lot of the... the um, multilateral sort of causes and initiatives and also champions of a lot of international norms in terms of just the, the entrepreneurship role that they and the championing role but also what are the implications for for us sitting in Africa and why I'm bringing up the Africa question is because we know very well just the kind of imprint that um, China has the kind of um I want to say pool or, or or the kind of narratives that circle the question of um, African involvement in the Chinese or Sinocentric um, world order. And do you think that there's not only parallels, but some lessons to be learned about, um, is, is, it, is it a kind of forerunner about what would happen for um, complete or heavy dependence on, on China being completely drawn into its sphere of influence amidst uh, multi-layered geopolitical competition for African countries. And, and I know like in, in previous conversations that, that we've had, you've said to an extent there is and to an extent there isn't. So maybe um, a bit on that, on the middle power question and on the African countries um, question. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely, I think the Australian case is unique. It's a unique geography. It's a unique economic relationship and an incredibly unique kind of country. Like the two stories of China and Australia of the last 200 years are atypical in both of their much, much longer trajectory. Um, and so you know, even Southeast Asian nations that trade heavily with China, they, they have their own mechanisms and their own responses. Australia's also got its own mechanisms and responses. Um, 
but even Canada as a middle power has had some tensions with China around the Huawei issue and the arrest of of um, Meng and then the arrest of some Canadian diplomats. And so Canada has its own middle powers. It's not as it's not nearly as dependent on China economically as Australia is, but it presently nonetheless has its own political issues with with China. Um, and then I, I always I, I don't really understand this relationship, but I think it's an interesting one. Would be the the middle power of South Korea and its relationship with China. You know, South Korea is as on the front line of China's rise as you can almost be. It's probably, you know, South Korea and Vietnam. In terms of, if you think of Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Macau, those are, they are on the front line, but differently. And they're also, they're all semi-Chinese or fully Chinese speaking, you know, countries, provinces, whatever. Um, Whereas South Korea is an independent nation, but has incredibly, you know, close economic and and people-to-people ties, but less necessarily based on immigration like Australia-China. There's a lot of Chinese um, who live in Australia, now Australian citizens, and some who are many, many more generations Australian than I am. I'm first. My dad is from Scotland. So Africa and so on, they they don't have – they have a completely different people-to-people basis to their ties with China than Australia does. And just like a a different geopolitical history, a different geopolitical everything. So it it is and it it isn't. I guess it's an example of if you do get super dependent, that can be problematic. It might be problematic to be that dependent on on any other one foreign country. Looking forward. No, no, no. Uh, hey, it's okay. Um, so sorry. I was just talking no, about the to... the implications of this diplomatic. You've already answered the middle power dimension, uh, but I'm talking about the Af- the African um, side of it, particularly because of how also um, deeply intense, I would say, and 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 largely asymmetric the China Africa. One of the one thing I would say, this is a kind of a funny thought. I I I've never lived in Canberra. I but I visited a few times for China conferences when I was working in Melbourne. And uh, Canberra's quite a small and local capital. It's not a London, it's not a Berlin, you know, it's it's not a Paris. It's a it's a very small, it's more of an Ottawa. And and to that extent, it's a bit like I, the only place I've lived in Africa is Sierra Leone, and the same. Its capital is not like a big international city. It's a small and mostly Sierra Leonean environment, and I think that creates a different interaction and mentality even of bureaucrats. Like I, I, I have to not get myself into trouble here. Um, but in terms of like, you know, you, you can end up with a very close relationship when the kind of bureaucratic and think tank environment is quite concentrated in a very small city 
the people-to-people bureaucratic and academic ties can become very intimate, and I don't mean literally intimate, but very intimate and very close. And if the same people frame a relationship for a long time, for many decades, then maybe that can also kind of create a pattern that might not be questioned or might not be bringing in as many new ideas and innovative thoughts as it could just because of the kind of unusual closeness and the small number of people who are kind of determining the relationship. Whereas I I feel like if that equivalent relationship is managed from a city like London or Paris, there's so much diversity in those cities and there's so much international interaction that it's very hard to get a bit myopic and so so intensively bilateral. But I think that's easier. It's an easier, you can slip into an easier default between yourself and and one country, especially if it's a big, important country, when you have a small capital and just a few people really, like a a few institutions and and a few people just dominate the relationship. So I, I think that's one kind of unexpected parallel I would draw on the Africa side. Yeah, um, it's in- interesting, um, Lauren, because and why I was asking this is because in some of the conversations that I've had with um, a couple of China experts, and the question about um, just the, the vision of a Sinocentric um, world order and how that's essentially like almost a situation of a frog in the water um, kind of dynamic. And, and it, it points to me, to me the, the question of African agency in the long term that um, getting so caught up, and, and this is linked to the broader question about U.S.-China um, geopolitical rivalry and, and what would happen in the long term, uh, not only with implications for African agency, but when they do find themselves almost like a frog, frog in the water in the Sinocentric um, world order, which is what a lot of us are projecting we are going into, I mean, just one of the many projections, it's it's inter- that's why I'm asking the question about African countries and whether this this question or case of Australia unique as as you've indicated whether that also points to to what it would mean to be on the receiving end um, of 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 um, China's fury or China's anger over over what it sees as politically motivated. Um, actions so that that was just an afterthought on on the question of the african countries but as we bring this to to a wrap i think the last question i would i would ask is um just your own musings on on what you think is the way out of this diplomatic stalemate and and i appreciate the point that you've just come off on on the question of um just the level of people to people ties between uh china and australia um, whether this would would provide a a, a pro- probable avenue for getting out of the stalemate, the question of the the Chinese Australia business communities, just the the level of potential of multi track engagement, and I mean this this links back to what you were saying about generations of of um, Australian um, 
um, expatriate communities in China, the relations between the the embassy and the Australian chambers of commerce, etc. So that very um, multi-level um, engagement. So um, just quick thoughts on on what you see as as probable avenues, multi-track avenues out of the diplomatic stalemate. Um. Yeah, so I don't understand why, like I haven't followed why China's picking the commodities it's picking to, you know, impose trade sanctions on and how those particular affected business communities have responded, whether, like, I, I you know, it depends which paper you read and which source you read. So the pro-China lobbyists in Australia would highlight the entrepreneurs who are devastated by this and the kind of more hawkish lobbyists would interview farmers that say, well, sure, we've been hit, but we don't care because it's necessary for Australia. So it's very hard to get a a kind of a comprehensive story of even how happy or unhappy different business communities are. And, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of, trade that is going on around all this geopolitical att- uh, geopolitical friction. Um, and certainly they talk the reports of iron ore sales have, you know, never been higher kind of thing. Um, so it's not that all trade has stopped and, you know, there's still a lot of collaboration going on between universities. I guess things like this will just be a bit more scrutinised. So it's not that they will stop. But as of this week, the federal government now has the power to go through the records of every single university in Australia, which are almost all state universities. There's very few private universities in Australia to go through them and and identify what relationships with China have been set up and should this relationship continue or otherwise. Like even last week, the government didn't have that power. It has it now. So I think all of these ties will continue. They may just continue in a slightly less freewheeling way than they have been up until now. So it's not that they'll stop. They'll just it'll just be a slightly more constrained type of ties. Um, which to be honest might hopefully mature the ties as well. Um I'm not saying they need maturing, but maybe it will mature them somehow. It will lead to a bit more of a long-run, deeper thought in creating partnerships and how is this going to work by 2049? You know, it's great today. Is this going to work also in the world of 2049? So it may bring like a greater sophistication of thinking. Um, So I don't at all, like like, I, I can't, certainly from Berlin, but even if I was in Australia, I would struggle to quite work out this this macro geopolitical story because I've, I've never worked for the Australian government. I've never lived in Canberra and I've been out of Australia for maybe 20 years nearly. Um, so how much of it is, is talk and how much of it is like actual kind of permanent structural change I I can't yet work out I I do think the ties will continue and they will stay quite deep they'll stay very deep they may deepen at a 
less rapid pace. They may change in in different ways. They may be more conservative. They may be more thoughtful. But they might also just mature in a in a you know in a in a a, a different in a different way. It's certainly there are some reports that Australians are now less likely to study Chinese and and so on. Um, that's unfortunate. There are there are obviously a lot of Chinese Australians who speak Chinese. There are not many people of other ethnic background who speak Chinese. So it would be a shame if if these tensions serve to diminish that long run kind of human capital. But that doesn't. It won't change the long run entrepreneurial spirit of people wanting to enter into those markets. Where it ends. Um, now, as you said, like next year, if Biden comes in, I don't think it will change the underlying issue of, you know, like the EU has called, has now designated China a competitor. And to me, that's natural that it is now a competitor just because of where it is economically and demographically. Like in this next phase of China's growth, it literally is a competitor. It's no longer a poor, uh, there are lots of poor people there, sure. But there's also a few hundred million quite wealthy and sophisticated Chinese people. And those and their companies and their industries are literally competitive. So it makes sense that countries now need to adjust to a much more technologically and economically competent China. Now, and that's a two-way thing. China wants us to, you know, accommodate it in the world, but it wants to also kind of be accommodated as some sort of developing country, which it isn't. I mean, it is in some areas, but in its frontiers, like it's a super technical, high-tech, sophisticated economy in places like Shanghai and Shenzhen. Um, so I don't think, even with Biden, it, you you may just get a a softening of the rhetoric and a, uh, a more diplomatic approach, but the actual need to adjust to a far more economically sophisticated and powerful country is like it, it's it's upon us, and I think it will be much more upon us when China actually marks the end of poverty in this first centennial goal next year. And so, to me, a big question is how. Will will China somehow symbolically and magnanimously shift its external approach once it celebrates that milestone? To me, that's a big question. Or will it continue in a in a very aggressive sense to realize that twenty forty nine goal on its own terms, regardless of the West? Or will there be some magnanimous shift? Um, in its external approach with this decade really having been the kind of a, a, a interlude of shifting its status, if that makes sense, from kind of where it was shifted from poor country to rich country with a lot of quite poor people, which is very different to just being a poor country. Like China is a GDP very rich country and it has a lot of very rich and sophisticated areas. It just happens that it also has some poor areas. So I guess that the West is asking China to relate to it from its coast because its coast is where it actually relates to the world. 
So it's like, well, we're, we are interacting with you really in this modern high-income coastal economy and we need to somehow adjust our systems to reflect that. And China is, so it'll be interesting next year how China magnanimously or otherwise reflects this end of absolute poverty while also acknowledging it still has a lot of poor people. So this is the kind of contradiction. That's that's the challenge of modern China, was that it's so rich on the one hand where it's rich and so high-tech and sophisticated and clever, but it has these other frontiers. So how all that, can, can there be a magnanimous shift next year? There will certainly be more friendly rhetoric, I think, but but a hard-nosed competitive pragmatism so more of a more even of a of a european approach which is just you know less explicit tension yeah but an, an awakening of it's not even competitive threat it's just competitive reality yeah, yeah for sure like it's not it's not a threat it's not a statement of aggression it's not a statement of anti china it's an acknowledgement of China's progress mm. that means that one has to adjust because it's not a poor developing country in its frontiers anymore at all. Yeah. And so, it, and, and it took the West longer to wake up to that probably than it should have. Yeah. And, and, it, and like you're saying now, uh, Lorraine, and you've raised very, very um, pertinent questions for, for 2021. It's an issue we'll certainly revisit from a, from a geopolitical um, analysis perspective, given that, that now the epicenter of um, geopolitical level now moving to the Indo-Pacific and some of the points that you raised um, earlier about what happens with the, with the, with the Biden administration coming, just how, how the, the area of strategic competition that we are getting into will shift the dynamics of that of that region, whether you want to call it the Indo-Pacific or the Asia-Pacific, like you're saying, largely depends on, on which capital you're sitting, sitting in. Uh, Lauren, I want to thank you very much for your insights, your time, and just some of the very pithy comments you've raised around this issue. It was important for us um, as strategic dialogues to also have a conversation on what's happening at the Asia-Pacific and relay that to, to our, our audience and bring it back home to some of the broader, um, very important geopolitical uh, discussions that we've been having. So thank you very much. We'll, we'll keep in touch. I also encourage um, listeners to follow you on Twitter. I know you're doing very, very uh, in, incredible work around economic demography. So uh, listeners, uh, you'll find Lauren um, Johnson on Twitter and also some of the work that you're doing at um, source i think is important and, and i would encourage listeners to also have a look at that thank you so much um everybody for tuning in we we also encourage you to share the podcast among your networks you can also share on and, and rate us and please leave a review where possible on the various podcasts google podcasts apple podcasts and spotify thank you very much lauren yeah thank you for having me